The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Tonight, all the way from Toronto, we have Reverend Joe Boot, who is the senior pastor of Westminster Chapel. Joe is an apologist, an educator, an author, and the senior pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto. He served with uh, Ravi Zacharias for seven years as an apologist in the UK and Canada, working for five years as the Canadian director of uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Prior to this, he served as an associate pastor with uh, Christ Church Fulham, heading up their evangelism uh, work in central London. In his first ministry role, he traveled as a national evangelist for the Salt Mine Trust in the UK. Joe has spoken all over the world in over 25 countries, in numerous universities, seminaries, churches, colleges, and conferences, including Eton College of uh, Windsor, Oxford University, the University of Toronto, University of Waterloo, Carleton University, London School of Theology, Virginia Tech, Forum University in Lahore, Pakistan, and he has publicly debated leading atheist in North American universities as he continues to do till today. He is a theology graduate of Birmingham Christian College in England. His postgraduate research was in the field of missionology with Cliff College and the University of Manchester. His apologetic works have been, have been published in Europe and in North America. They're on sale at our book stand tonight. So if you want to get one and have it uh, autographed by Joe, you will have that possibility. They include Searching for Truth, Why I Still Believe, in his latest volume, How Then Shall We Answer. He's a visiting lecturer at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics at Wycliffe Hall at Oxford, England. And he's a contributing author uh, to Thomas Nelson Major Apologetics Volume, Beyond Opinion. He is regularly seen on the Michael Corrin Show and addresses apologetic questions for Listen Up TV. These are in Canada. He is currently in the process of launching the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Joe currently resides in Canada with his wife Jenny and three children, Naomi, Hannah, and Isaac. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Reverend Joe Boot. Well, it's so good to be here uh, this evening, and uh, I want to thank you for uh, hosting me, and I want to thank Carl in particular for the invitation to be part of this uh, series with you uh, here in uh, Santa Cruz. One of the hardest things about being a public speaker, especially being a Christian apologist, is living up to your introduction, and uh, especially when it's really long like that and very flattering, uh, but nonetheless... It really is wonderful to be here, and I do hope that tonight uh, this area of apologetics will be uh, illuminated a little bit more for you, and so I want to speak for a a short time and then take uh, any questions uh, that you might have. I know that uh, tonight's uh, topic has been uh, given the the title Christ-Centered Apologetics, Christ-Centered Apologetics, and so what I want to do is really talk about the role that the Christ of Scripture plays in the area of uh, Christian apologetics. Now, I'm not going to 
try not to assume too much tonight. I know this series has been going on for a while, but let's just do a quick show of hands. Um, Who knows what the word apologetics actually means? Put your hand up. Okay, so let's do it the other way around. Who doesn't know what apologetics means? Put your hands up. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Okay, apologetics comes from the the Greek uh, word in the New Testament, apologia, or apologia. And uh, we find uh, perhaps the Magna Carta of Christian apologetics is given to us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness, with respect, keeping a clear conscience. Now, it's very interesting and also very important to notice that it was not a philosopher who gave the commandment to give a defense. That word there, defense, in the Greek is apologia. We get two English words from that word, apology and apologetics. And so some people think, well, Christian apologetics is about saying sorry and going around apologizing for being a Christian. Well, from time to time, one needs to apologize for what some Christians have done. Uh, But... More often than not, what we're doing is offering a defense. Socrates famously offered his apology at the Areopagus in Athens, which meant his defense. That's what apologetics is. Now, one of the misconceptions about Christian apologetics, because of much of the literature, the nature of the literature about it, is that many of us could overlook very easily the fact that a peasant, Peter, commands the church, the persecuted church in this case, to be ready to give a defense of the faith. He didn't say, okay, now all of you with an IQ over 120, you do evangelism. Uh, Sorry, under 120, you do evangelism. And everybody with an IQ of over 120, you're doing apologetics. Neither was Peter himself considered, uh, like the Apostle Paul, a leading intellectual. He was not schooled by Gamaliel. He did not come from... Tarsus, which was a great center of uh, philosophy. It was the Apostle Paul, of course, who is found in Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus in Athens, speaking with uh, the philosophers. But Peter was an ordinary man, much like you and I. So if you're here tonight thinking, well, I'm not sure about this apologetic stuff. It's quite interesting, but it's not really kind of my area. Uh, you know, I'm happy to you know, help the kids at the baseball ground and, you know, or I'll bake cakes for the church, but I'm not doing this apologetic stuff. Well, actually, we're all commissioned and all commanded to be ready to give a defense for those who ask us a reason for the hope that we have. It's a commandment. It's actually given to the church so that for those in your sphere of influence, you're required to give a defense. Now, that's not to say you're C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer or Ravi Zacharias. You know, some of us are called to give a defense in the context of the university debate or whatever. Not all of us are called to that or uh, not all of us are capable of doing that. Our gifts are different and they're in different areas. But we are called to give a defense in the context of our own sphere of influence. That's what God wants us to do. That's why this is relevant. Now, one of the misconceptions about apologetics is that it's seen, particularly in light of some of the literature, as essentially a rationalistic project. That is, it's about um, very dull intellectuals Uh, engaged in intellectual gymnastics with one another. A kind of, tonight is a sort of master class in Christian ninjutsu. As uh, somebody I met the other night said, um, apologedi, you know, as though, uh, which I thought was quite good. I'm going to use it. Uh, 
um, that the basic idea is that somehow you have a you have to try and overcome every person's possible objection and know the answer to absolutely every question that people have and so you must uh, terrorize the uh, librarian trying to get out every book you possibly can on philosophy in order that you might never be outwitted and hence most people are not very interested in doing that but that's not really what we're being asked to do we're meant Peter says at the beginning of that text in 1 Peter 3:15 to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's in the very center of our beings. We set apart Christ as Lord. Interestingly, he doesn't say set apart Plato as Lord, or set apart Aristotle as Lord, or set apart any human thinker as Lord, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now when you do that, the Lordship of Jesus Christ extends to every area of our life. Many of us are accustomed to thinking of the Lordship of Christ extending to our ethical lives over my moral behavior, but not really over my thinking, not over my view of politics or law or history or literature or science. In other words, Christ's lordship is truncated to a small area of ethics. Yet actually, the issue of truth in all of these disciplines is an ethical question. So we begin by making Christ lord. And that's why apologetics must always be Christ-centered. It doesn't begin with the autonomous thinking of man. As Descartes began the project of uh, trying to establish God with the doubting subject, he said, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. I'll doubt everything I possibly can until there's nothing left to be doubted except until there's nothing else that really I can question. He says, what did I get down to? Well, just the fact that I am thinking. And from there he tried to construct this, as a Catholic Christian, tried to construct Uh, uh, an argument for God's existence. But actually, we're not to begin with an empty mind, doubting everything. We're to begin, in fact, with Christ. And that's where we're going to begin tonight in the Gospel of John. I just want to read a few verses to you that will be very familiar to you from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, uh, do open it. A lot of people don't think you need a Bible when you're doing apologetics because it's all about intellectual arguments of philosophers, but actually you do. You need the Scriptures. The Word of God is central to a Christ-centered apologetic. We read in John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 1 with the first verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the one true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this is a very, very 
famous passage, of course. I'm sure many of you could have quoted it to me without the Bible open in front of you. John's prologue, the introduction to his gospel, which is filled with signs, seven key signs, seven major discourses. John says, written that you might believe and that believing you might have life in his name. And John was writing in particular for the Gentile mind. We have here a kind of overture to the rest of his gospel. But his introduction is so dramatic, it's so astonishing, it's so far-reaching that we can miss its scope in terms of the task of apologetics. In fact, one commentator, Leslie Newbigin, says, how do you begin to explain that which must in the end be accepted as the beginning of all explanation? The reason we preach Christ and begin with God in Christ and his revelation is because here we find the foundation of truth. Here we find the foundation of being, the foundation of knowledge, the foundation of meaning, the foundation of value. In other words, those major areas of, that philosophers are supposed to investigate, ontology, being, epistemology, knowledge, axiology, ethics and values, they are found, we are told in Scripture, right here at their root in the person of Jesus Christ. And so to begin anywhere, anywhere else in our thinking becomes absurd. We begin at the beginning with the foundation. John tells us in him was light, and the light was the life of men. One of the temptations or tendencies in apologetics is to see God as the conclusion at the end of an argument. I want to put it to you that if you don't begin with God, you can't end with God. In logic, a conclusion has to be entailed in the premise. If you don't begin with the universal, which is God, well, you're not going to find him at the end of your argument. And so... We're not beginning with neutral or, um, which is a mythological idea, by the way. There are no neutral facts. There is no brute or uh, neutral factuality in the universe. We don't begin in neutral terms with bare facts because all things were made through him. If all things were made through him, by him, for him, as is repeated, of course, by the Apostle Paul, how can you begin your argument for God your defense of the faith anywhere else than with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word. If we do not begin with the Word, we cannot conclude with God. Now this was the, the approach of the great apologist, St. Augustine, who said this, I believe in order that I may understand. The whole thrust of St. Augustine's apologetic was that we must begin in belief, in faith, in God. I wonder if I asked you how many of you here became a Christian because somebody put one set of arguments on one side of the scale and another set of arguments on the other side of the scale, drew a line down the middle, and you sort of sat there in rational objectivity and said to yourself, hmm, well, those things give us this much and this gives us this much value. Oh, I think the balance of probability is in favor of God. You know, I'll become a Christian. It doesn't really work like that. Most of our experience doesn't correspond to that. It's partly because we are not detached brains in lab coats. We're human beings made in the image of God who 
Scripture tells us, are in ethical rebellion against God. We're ethically hostile towards God. So Augustine says, we believe in order that we may understand. Anselm, likewise, following him in the Middle Ages, said that my faith seeks understanding. And apologetics has two functions when we focus our attention upon Christ. First of all, it strengthens our confidence and faith as believers. And secondly, it helps us reach out to those who do not yet know him. It gives us tools to show why our faith is meaningful, is credible, is rational. We begin to see the explanatory power of Christ and his word, and we, the apologetic challenge, the task of apologetics is to look at these contrary worldviews, these other worldviews that challenge the authority of Christ, and to do an internal critique. We show how they collapse, they self-destruct under their own weight. It's interesting to note that when you read the Bible, how many of you have read a cosmological argument in the Bible? Does God ever sort of say, now, there was motion, and so there must be a prime mover, so believe in me. Does he ever offer a, uh, well, maybe you get close to an ontological argument. We won't get into that now. It's very complicated. But you don't read rationalistic arguments for the faith in Scripture. You read, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Try and get on without Him. That's the challenge of Christian apologetics. You try and make sense of reality, make your experience intelligible without the God of Scripture. Now there's a deliberate parallel in the Gospel of John to Genesis. We're all familiar with that. The book of beginnings. The Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament Genesis, uh, the Old Testament uh, books, beginning with Genesis, the, the Septuagint, the book is called uh, Genesios, and the same two words that the book of Genesis in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, begins with, begin the Gospel of John. There's a very self-conscious reference right back to the beginning, to the origin, to the root of all things in John's presentation of Christ. And here we have in John's Gospel this claim that everything exists by the Word, the Logos, the Word of God. We're told here that there is an answer to the rudimentary question of the philosopher, why is there something and not nothing? Well, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The universe isn't a product of an accident, according to John, nor a laboratory experiment of aliens. It's the work of the Logos. Now, you know, that might sound amusing, and I don't know whether this has been touched on in previous weeks, but this is a, an increasingly common idea that uh, maybe aliens, you know, brought, uh, it's called panspermia, maybe aliens seeded our planet with life so that human evolution could take place and bring us to where we are today. You know, people will believe anything sometimes but the Word of God. They'd rather have little green men be the designer than God because you're not really going to be morally accountable to a little green man. So we have the speech of God, the Word of God, the Logos. And the Word of God is not the abstraction of a philosopher. You see, the Greeks were interested in ideas. People today are interested in ideas. You know, it's interesting that Luke tells us in the book of Acts 
that when Paul went to Athens to the Areopagus, well, actually, when he was, in the, <clears throat> when he was invited to go to the, to the Areopagus on Mars Hill, it was because people said, um, Luke tells us, uh, who is this uh, seed picker? He's picked up all kinds of strange ideas. He's a proclaimer of strange divinities. And Luke makes this interesting passing comment. He said, because people in Athens did little else than spend their time listening to some new idea. People are interested in new ideas today, aren't they? I mean, it might be on uh, Ricky Lake or Oprah or whatever it is, but they're interested in new ideas. Anything new seems to pique people's interest. We don't have here, though, in John's Gospel, an abstraction, just some idea of a philosopher or a thinker. Only God, after all, can reveal God. That's why the incarnation was necessary. If you're going to have a revelation of God, you need God to be doing the speaking, God to be doing the revealing. That's why Jesus never said, I've got some truth for you. I was meditating and I was enlightened and experienced truth. Or I can point you in the direction of truth. He said, I am the truth. Truth is not an abstraction. It's actually located and grounded in a person. Truth is personal. And this is the Christ about whom the whole of the Gospels speak. He's not the impersonal principle of Greek philosophy. And when John tells us in the beginning, he doesn't simply mean the origin of history, but the very root of it. The word, John is telling us, continually was. He's not part of, this word is not part of created or dependent reality. He is independent divinity. And one of the things that John reveals to us straight away is that this God, this God of Scripture, creator God, is in his own nature a communicating God. In the beginning was the Word. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who reveals himself. He's a God who communicates. And we'll come to this in a moment, but other worldviews do not give us a communicating God. They give us impersonal silence. But here we have in Jesus Christ the speech of God, the Word of God. There was more than something a bit divine about Jesus. He was God and he was with God. Notice the presence of the Trinity here in this text. Because the Word was God, that's identity, unity, and he was with God, plurality. So you have unity in diversity, which is what the word university means, by the way. Unity in diversity is found in the being of God. Christ reveals that to us. The revelation of God in Christ tells us why we have unity and diversity in the effect, the creation, because there is unity and diversity in the cause, God himself. There's distinction already within his being. You have the equal ultimacy. Now, some of you may be philosophers here, some of you may be not, but the <clears throat> I'm assuming the majority not. But one of the foundational questions in philosophy is, you know, is reality one or is it many? At root, at bottom, philosophers ask this right back in terms of the pre-Socratic philosophers, is reality ultimately one? Is there really some kind of unchanging one 
principle? Or is it many? Is it just discrete flux and atoms bouncing around? Is there any source of unity? Well, in God, in Christ Jesus, in the God of Scripture, we have unity and diversity, both equally ultimate. We'll come to that in the Q&A, if you wish, to talk about how the Trinity deals with this. But there is, if you look around you, look at the person next to you, look at the person behind you, you'll see that there is diversity in the human population, mercifully. But there's also a unity. We know we're all human here. So there is unity in diversity, which is a reflection of who God is in himself. God's communication in terms of revelation in history begins then with this act of creation. And we can't really deal with the salvation of Christ in terms of our witnessing to our friends if we do not deal with Christ who is also creator. That's why the subject of creation is so important. That's why Carl has been emphasizing it through this series. It was this same word who spoke in history to the prophets. It was this word who met with Moses at the burning bush. It was this word, we're told, who followed the people of Israel through the wilderness as the water from the rock. But we're told in the New Testament that that's the rock they drank from, Christ. This same word gave the law to Moses. And here he is now incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And John goes on to tell us the purpose behind this self-revelation, that he is re-establishing communication with fallen human beings. You know, that's the great news we have to tell non-believers in our evangelism and apologetics, is that our gods are communicating God, he's a speaking God, and he's come to re-establish communication with us that was broken because of our alienation through sin. He's a communicating God. Paul tells us similarly to John that all things consist or hold together in him. Everything was made through him. Now notice the choice of words. Through him. Is him personal or impersonal? You see, John could have said all things were made through it. And without it, nothing was made that was made. But it's personal. There's no naturalistic impersonal principle in operation here in the context of creation. It's all things were made through him, by him, Paul says, and indeed for him. In him all things consist, says Paul, they hold together. So even the conserving power in this world is not through some independent natural force, but through a person, through the person of Jesus Christ. In him all things consist, they all hold together. They hold together by his word. Life then doesn't exist somehow in its own right, but in him and dependent upon him. All things have been made. Notice that scripture does not here tell us that all things are being made. God is not still in the process of creating. One of the interesting issues in the context of the discussion about evolution from the Christian perspective is, well, if evolution is the true story of the universe, then the process of creation continues. It's going on now. And death is the engine of it because God is still 
in the theistic evolutionary perspective still using it. But the creation was finished, and the word now sustains it. God is not a God of process in himself either. We haven't got here the God of process theology who's a changing and evolving and he doesn't really know what orthodoxy is. We have a God who is unchanging, who's not in process but has completed his creative work. There are no independent powers then in the context of creation. Now, of course, we hear people talking all the time, don't we, in our culture today about nature doing this, nature doing that nature acting in some way. And it's a personification. What people have done is they've attributed to the world, the universe, personal attributes. It's a personification. Nature doesn't do anything. What is nature? Well, that's the created order, but nature doesn't act in any way. You know, there's a fire or a storm. We say, well, Mother Nature's not happy about this or whatever. We're personal, we are personifying something which in an atheistic perspective is totally impersonal. We can't ascribe will, wisdom, and power to the created order without invoking God. Where God is rejected, nature is simply the product of chance and of chaos. There is no purpose, no design plan, no preordained pattern. We're confronted with a universe and a world of brute factuality. What is brute factuality? Well, just think about this for a moment. If there is no God, if there's no word, then there is no design plan. That is, there's no preordination. There is no pre-existing relationship between the facts of your experience. So take, if you could, even in your imagination, all the atoms in the universe, even though we're not entirely sure what atoms are, but let's just use the concept. Take all the atoms in the universe... But, but hold that instead of there being a God who has given structure, purpose, design, and pattern to all things so that they are in relationship to one another. You know, my children, I have three children, and they like doing these join-the-dot puzzles. Do you remember those? I don't know what you call them here in the U.S., but what are they called? Connect the dots are pretty similar, right? And then as you connect the dots, a picture emerges, doesn't it? Because there is a relationship a pre-established relationship between the dots. They're not there randomly. That's the idea of it. Well, imagine a join-the-dot picture where there was actually no relationship between the dots at all. And there were billions of dots. Astrology. Imagine then what you've got there. You've got no preordained pattern, no structure, no design. All you've got is a universe of brute factuality. At any time when you approach then the world, the universe, and you try and link those dots together, you're not finding a pattern that's already there. There is no pattern there. You're creating an illusion for yourself. That's what the atheist is confronted with all of the time when they try and look at the world. There is no pre-established pattern. There is no, you see, the Christian thinks reconstructively. We think God's thoughts after him, I think Copernicus said. Because our thought is creatively reconstructive of God's thought. We discover his meaning, his pattern, his truth. But in that world without God, there is no meaning, pattern, or truth. 
John tells us there is a personal agency at the root of all things, and that person is Jesus Christ. We have a totally distinct, transcendent God, not some impersonal principle. You see, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Babylonians, the Greeks, they all looked, as do many in the present, to a dim, distant evolutionary past where something came out of nothing. There was some sort of watery chaos, some sort of self-generated existence. And when you begin there, it's not long before everything is self-generated. History becomes our invention. Morality becomes our invention. Knowledge becomes our invention. But John says, in the beginning was the Word, and all things were made through Him. And this means, ultimately, that all things have a meaning and purpose located in the person of Jesus Christ, because all things were made through Him. See, we've got to recover what it really means to recognize who Jesus Christ is. In him all things consist. In Exodus 3.14, God identifies himself as he who is or the I am that I am because he is the source of light and life. And this is what John tells us, doesn't he? He goes on to say, the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So if you don't have Christ, you are without light and life. Well, what's the opposite of light and life? Darkness and death. And Christ, speaking his wisdom in the Proverbs, says, He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. That's why we have a suicidal culture today. That's why the existentialists were so bent on suicide in so many ways suicidal thinking and even their own extinction. Because when you turn away from he who is light and life, you move inexorably towards death and darkness. In the Psalms, in Psalm 36, 9, we read, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In other words, what John is telling us is that Jesus Christ is the light which illuminates all other facts. How many of you, you know, during the day here in Santa Cruz would go to the drawer, get yourself a candle to go and light up the backyard at midday? Nobody would do that. You say, well, this is a secondary derivative light, and actually all other forms of light and energy derive their energy from the sun anyway. And sometimes in some of our human thinking and reasoning, we, we think we're really clever and intelligent when we get a little candle out the drawer. When actually in his light, we see light. Without his light, there is no light in anything. It's only darkness. Newbegin again has observed about John's claim here, and I quote, the presupposition of all this is that in fact, Jesus is the true light and therefore the light which shines on every human being. There is no other light. There are not different varieties of light. There is only one light, namely that which enables us to see things as they really are. And things really are as they are shown to be in the light of Jesus because he is the word through whom they all came to be. It follows then that all men, whether they believe or not, live under the light just as they live by the creative word of God. 
And thus it follows that when a person turns to faith in Jesus Christ, he meets not a stranger, but one whom he recognizes as the one in whom he was loved and chosen before the foundation of the world. You know, when think back to when you came to Christ, if you're a Christian here, did you think you were coming to a stranger or to one who knew you intimately, deeply, better than you know yourself? This eternal, all-personal word is the biblical and Christian understanding of this relational God, not an abstract concept, but the word is made flesh. So all of those of you who might be afraid of apologetics, hey, our argument was made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He was concretized. We weren't left with abstract argumentation that only certain philosophers can follow. We were given the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. The image of the invisible God who is revealing God, not exhaustively, but in completeness. In knowing Christ, we don't suddenly have a God-like apprehension of who God is. Only God is totally self-conscious and knows himself totally. But we have a true knowledge of who he is in the person of Jesus Christ because he is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of of his nature. So Jesus could say to his own disciples, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, for I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Modern translation of this word uh, declared here in John, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is the, in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him to us, means literally has made him known. We have not been left to speculate about God. So the object of apologetics is not speculation. It's not just intellectual speculation. It's about the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here is our starting point. This is what's so important. Our starting point is Christ and his word, his inscripturated word. This is our foundation. Our foundation is, uh, is not... Uh, Aristotle's tool and Greek rules of logic, as valuable as the study of that may be. Our foundation is Christ and his word as infallible. Why is God's word infallible? Well, the God of Scripture, the God revealed in Jesus Christ through whom all things were made, what other kind of word could such a God speak? Is there any other sort of word? The God of all truth? The God by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made, who knows the end from the beginning? Is there any other kind of word that that God could speak? God is not a man that he should lie. You see, the very definition of God in this word means that his word is infallible. Now, you could say, well, that's a really difficult doctrine to defend in our time, the infallibility of God's word. But you know what? The concept or the doctrine of infallibility is an inescapable concept. If you don't grant it to Jesus Christ, you just transfer it somewhere else. 
You transfer it to your own thinking, or you transfer it to your philosophy professor, or you transfer it to Oprah, or wherever you're going to transfer it, but somebody then speaks a word of authority for you. For the existentialists, it's the moment, it's the historical moment that's infallible. But it's only infallible for that moment because the universe is total flux, so next week the infallible word will say something else. You see, that's why the spirit of the age defines the creed of the age in our own time, because we have lost this Christian-centered worldview, Christ-centered worldview, which has the unchanging, infallible God as our source. For Sigmund Freud, the infallible came from the subconscious or even the unconscious. For the communist, it comes from the state. But somebody speaks the word into your life. There is not a man, woman, or child who does not have a word spoken to them, which they accept. So if you deny authority to the person of Christ, you haven't denied the concept of authority or the concept of infallibility. You've just transferred it elsewhere. This means, of course, leads us to the conclusion, that okay, this is our word. This is the word we have received, Christ. But there are a lot of counterfeit replacement words out there, people who do not build on this foundation. And when they ask the questions about truth, freedom, knowledge, morality, meaning, and so forth, they have a very different understanding to us. That doesn't mean those people are not religious. It means they have a different set of religious assumptions. Men and women rejecting the word of Christ replace his word with another word. And this is true not just of other world religions per se, the major world religions. It's true of the atheist and the humanist alike. We are religious animals who cannot help but believe in something as divine. I'm going to show this to you now. James Livingstone in his book, The Anatomy of the Sacred, has noted, and I quote, Anthropologists would agree that religion is a universal human phenomenon. A pervasive and permanent reality, a human being is rightly called homo religiosus, a religious animal. So what do we mean when we use the term religion? Now this is critical for our time. In an age in which Christians and others of world faiths are called religious, but the secular sphere is considered non-religious, neutral. And that's the biggest myth that many of us, even as Christians, have completely bought into hook, line, and sinker, as we say in England. How do we understand what we mean by religion? Well, the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead suggested, and I quote, religion is what an individual does with his solitariness. Perhaps a better definition, I think, is Tillich's definition. He says, religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern, a concern which qualifies all other concerns as preliminary and which itself contains the answer to the question of the meaning of life. Anything which is seeking to probe or give answers to that question is a religious confession. Not simply those who have outward forms of worship. All of life then has a religious character and a religious facet. So every neighbor of yours, every friend of yours, every fellow student of yours, every colleague of yours is religious. They may not use the term, but they are. And they've accepted an authority of some sort, some word. They may have rejected the word of God in Christ, but they have embraced some word. This is what we have to help people see. 
to make them self-conscious about their thinking. Most people are not, and you need your false teeth in to say this, epistemologically self-conscious. And that literally means they're not conscious or thinking about what they believe about knowledge and why. They've never asked those foundational questions. Or at least they haven't given proper attention to them. Livingstone has pointed out that for American thinkers like Dewey, the religious is a quality of experience, a quality that may be found in ascetic, scientific, or political activity. For Tillich, the research scientist or the political zealot, whose commitment represents a state of being grasped by an ultimate concern, is by his definition religious. For Dewey and Tillich, almost everything and anything is capable of being religious. I think that's absolutely true. Because we cannot avoid religious pre-commitments in our thinking about almost any subject. History, literature, science, whatever it may be. Sociologist Milton Yinger writes, and I quote, Religion can be defined, listen carefully, as a system of beliefs and practices by means of which a group of people struggle with the ultimate problems of human life. Let me say that again. I think it's a good definition. Religion can be defined as a system of beliefs and practices by means of which a group of people struggle with the ultimate problems of human life. Some people deal with the problem of human life playing golf, buying a yacht, don't they? I mean, people deal with the issue of human life in any number of different ways. They do all kinds of things with their solitariness. You can't escape being a religious creature, whoever you are. Again, the existentialist Tillich, and by the way, in quoting Paul Tillich, I'm not endorsing his thought. I just think he understood the nature of religion. Man is ultimately concerned, he says, about his being and meaning. Man is unconditionally concerned about that which conditions his being beyond all the conditions in him and around him. Man is ultimately concerned about what determines his ultimate destiny beyond all preliminary necessities and accidents. Now when you think about it, that's what people are concerned about, aren't they? They're concerned about what conditions their lives. Is it their horoscope? I mean, is there something in the alignment of the planets under which you were born that defines, that determines your life? People believe this. They're concerned about what conditions them. So that another way to put the same question would be, what is it that is unconditioned or independent reality? That defines our religion. What do we, we believe that is ultimately unconditioned? We think we're conditioned beings. We're not independent. But what is it that is independent and unconditioned? For us as Christians, that is the Word of God, the eternal Word. For others, it's something else. Religion, then, is not defined by public acts of worship directed towards a deity. It can be that but by no means exclusively. In many forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, for example, there is no worship as such. It's amazing how people fail to see this. Many of your non-believing friends will say, well, I'm, not a, I'm not very religious, by which they mean they don't go to church, or they don't go to the mosque, or they don't go to the temple, or they don't go to the wherever. They go to the gym. It's remarkable that so many fail to recognize this. Philosopher Roy Clauser has written, in Hinduism, the divine is not considered a being at all. 
It is instead an indefinite beingness or being itself. For the same reason, Brahman Atman cannot be strictly be called a god if a god is taken to be an individual and personal. Buddhism also denies the divine as a being but goes even further. For fear that being itself is too definite an expression, it insists on such terms as void and non-being and nothingness for the divine. So although these religions believe there is a divine reality, they do not believe the divine is a being at all, let alone a supreme one. So many of your friends who say to you, well, you know, what about all the other gods and all the other revelations? The first question is to ask, which gods are you talking about? Which gods? What god? What revelation? Because the vast majority of the world's religions do not believe in a personal God at all who speaks. They believe in some impersonal, ineffable, unknowable principle. The many gods expressed within the Hindu tradition as an example are derivative. They're not ultimate reality. When you go and look at the ancient Greek poems, Hesiod or Homer, you find that all of creation is evolving out of some primordial reality, out of the natural world. Homer has a primordial, vast expanse of watery stuff from which the gods themselves evolved. So their gods are not God in the way that we would understand God. They're not actually unconditioned reality. What they believed actually was the material universe itself was unconditioned reality, was God, was divine, was eternal. That same dependence is found in Babylonian thought as well. But the difference with the, and what makes the Hebrew Christian faith stand out as totally unique, even in ancient times, was this conviction in Scripture that God stands outside of the world. He's called it into existence by His own divine will and power. He's distinct from it. You see, pantheism sees the universe as an emanation of God. All is one, one is all, and all is God. That's what pantheism means. And there's a very good reason for that. Now this gets a bit uh, heady. You may be spinning a little bit already, but um, <clears throat> if ultimate reality, think hard now, if ultimate reality is undifferentiated unity, being, i.e. some sort of monad, some sort of uh, united principle without distinction, without differentiation, then the, oh, the whole idea of creation as something distinct from that would be impossible. If ultimate reality is somehow one, a bare unity without distinction, there could be no creation as such. Whatever it is must be some sort of emanation from that principle. That's what pantheism is. But in God, in the Christian view of God, you see, we have distinction within the being of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. The Son knows the Father. There's differentiation, there's distinction, so there is freedom, so there can be creation. I often ask my Muslim friends, what was God loving? What did God know before he created the universe? Well, in the Islamic conception of God, who is an ultimate unity, a bare monad, he couldn't have known anything. There was nothing to know. There was nobody to love. So their God becomes defined by the creation itself. 
relative to creation. He is not truly transcendent. I digress, and I don't want to overcomplicate the evening, which is probably already complicated enough. You see, we have, unlike all paganism, something here in John and in Genesis totally unique. A God who stands outside, distinct from his creation, who's called it into existence, who speaks into it, who reveals himself. All systems of thought have in common the belief that the divine is that which is characterized by non-dependence. Now, some of the pre-Socratic thinkers, those prior to Socrates, like the Pythagoreans, believed in all kinds of things as a, people believe in all kinds of things as ultimate. The Pythagoreans believed that numbers were divine, that all reality was made up of numbers. Actually, there are some mathematicians who all go almost this far again today, or almost Pythagorean. And you know the Pythagoreans wrote hymns to numbers. Do you want to hear one? Just to show you you can worship anything. Bless us, divine number, thou who generatest gods and men, thou that containest the root and source of eternally flowing creation, for divine number begins with the profound, the pure unity, until it comes to the holy four. Then it begets the mother of all, the all-encompassing, the all-abounding, the firstborn, the never-swerving, the never-tiring, holy ten, the keyholder of all. Now, these were serious thinkers. These were serious philosophers. World number theory is this idea that there are, is an eternal realm of number. They worship numbers. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, that men and women, their hearts being darkened, have turned to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Professing to be wise, they turn the turned it around, as it were, and became fools. That's the story of human philosophy. The Christian explanation thus is utterly different in that it is a personal explanation. If you want to know the difference between the Christian and non-Christian views of reality, Christianity alone gives us a personal explanation of all things in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why there are persons in this room, not automatons, not robots, not atomically determined, chaotic assemblages of atoms. Bertrand Russell said that we are just a random collocation of atoms. Well, that's an impersonal explanation of all things, isn't it? Actually destroys the possibility of knowledge and philosophy, but it's impersonal. What's the point of this survey, you might be asking yourself? Well... Only one view of reality does not ground itself in an impersonal void of nothingness. And it's the God of Scripture. It's the Word made flesh. All other worldviews collapse into this void. I work that out in my book, uh, Why I Still Believe. If you're interested in a layperson's explanation of that, you can pick one of those up. And you know what happens in our own, the way it's expressed in our own culture today so important that we recognize why we face the challenges we do in the contemporary context. All thought, all worldviews, all approaches to the political sphere, the legal sphere, the educational sphere, they are all religious. There's no neutrality. 
And the claim of Scripture is that all men and women are religious because they are made in the image of God by the Word of God, and they are everywhere confronted by the divine, and they are therefore either idolaters or true worshippers. That's the message of the Bible. You're either an idolater or you're a true worshipper. Augustine said you either worship demons or you worship the true God. Now, when you do not have the Word of God above and the power of God above to transform your life, if there is no above, no transcendent realm, if there is no Word, Logos, and you need power to change your life, where are you going to seek power from if not from above? Or are you going to seek it from below? And that is why we have an obsession in our culture today with the occult and with spiritism and with mediums and with vampires. You go into Blockbuster or you turn on cable TV, most of the most popular shows today are about spiritism, they're about EPS, they're about mediums, they're about occultism. And our culture has become exceedingly occultic in its thinking. Because if you reject power from above, from the word from above, then you are looking for a word from below. The religion of environmentalism today is an expression of this worship of the creature rather than the creator. Now, I'm not saying don't put out your recycling. I do that. I've got a blue box and a green one. I compost. I put out... Right. In fact... The mandate to look after creation, theologians call the dominion mandate, and it was given right back in Genesis, that we are to be responsible and care for God's creation as his vice regents. Humanists have just hijacked our mandate. Only what they've done, they've turned it into a religion. They've said the creature is God. And so man starts to look like an infestation on the planet. He needs to be rubbed off of it. in favor of field mice and raccoons or whatever else there is. So we will kill the unborn, but you've got to save the whale. In England, we had a situation uh, around the turn of the last century there, which is not that long ago, remember, just eight years ago, where we were, there was discussions about the, about the abortion law and the killing of the unborn, and what took priority in Parliament was the issue of fox hunting and banning of fox hunting. And farmers saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, we are infested everywhere with foxes. They're even in the cities now, rooting through the garbage everywhere. But you can't touch a fox, but you can murder the unborn. You see, that's religion. It's a religious perspective. Man has always got to make himself, give himself a religious worldview, because he's a religious animal, and if it's not God, he'll look for it somewhere else. Consequently, whatever has this unconditioned, non-dependent status, it's considered to be our religious devotion. That's our principle of the divine. The word then that is not, does not come from Christ, which is the spoken word, the fiat word, the creative word, becomes the word of negation. If it's not the word of creation, it's a word of negation. And so we have the new atheists today, don't we? Some of you may have read, you know, Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, lambasting religion as though they are working outside of religious pre-commitments. And it just shows you how little they've thought about the subject, I'm afraid. Because common to all of these pagan ideas is this, the continuity of being. 
You see, the uh, North American Indians believed this too. The totem pole, totemism, is the idea of the continuity of being. It's, it's paganism. It's always been with us. It's with us again in Gaia, in earth worship, in this modern religion of environmentalism. Is there is a kinship between all things because they're all related in terms of this continuity, this chain of being, the Greeks called it. Right from ancient Egypt to the present, all has flowed and evolved from some ultimate impersonal unity, some sort of nothingness. In Hinduism and Buddhism, the material world out there is an illusion. It's maya. Material reality is distinguished only from the nothingness into which everything is going to be reabsorbed. You see, the disappointment with uh, nirvana or with Brahman, this impersonal void, is that the self is annihilated there. So even if you got there, you wouldn't be happy about it because you wouldn't know. There is no you. So you wouldn't ever say, hey, I've reached nirvana. I'm there. I've made it. Because there it's non-being. All flows from this void, comes up from the void and returns to it. Klauser has recognized then the religious character of all popular materialism that has reinvaded our culture today, that it is paganism. He says this, the materialist who regards physical matter as self-existent may not be induced by that belief to pray to subatomic particles or sing hymns to force fields, nor will the modern rationalist who regards, say, mathematical laws as self-existent be inclined to develop a liturgy of quantitative adoration for their worship. Nevertheless, these beliefs ascribe to matter or mathematical laws, respectively, the same non-dependent status that a Jew, Christian, or Muslim ascribes to God or a Hindu attributes to Brahman Atman. Rather, they ha rather than having no religion at all, such people simply have a very different idea of what is divine an idea that makes worship seem inappropriate, seem inappropriate to them. However, that may be true for some, but you read others of the popular apologists for materialism and atheism today. I was reading a book recently called um, True Believers and Skeptics by a British uh, science writer called Chet Ramo, uh, who Stephen Jay Gould, the late professor at Harvard, endorsed as a wise religious humanist. And this is how he proposed to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge and religion. This is what he says. Listen carefully. See if you can recognize some of the strains of our current culture. He says this, The God of spiraling powers resides in nature beyond all metaphors, beyond all scriptures, beyond all final theories. It is the ground and source of our sense of wonderment, of power, of powerlessness, of light, of darkness, of meaning, and of bafflement. It is the God whose history began... The God whose history began with the first human who experienced awe, contingency, fear. There encounter gate, jawed, and silent, the God of birds and birth defects, trees and cancer, quarks and galaxies, earthquakes and supernovas, awesome, edifying, dreadful and good, more beautiful and more terrible than is strictly ne necessary. Let it strike you dumb with worship and fear beyond words, beyond logic. What is it? It is everything that is. It is everything that is. This is the resurgent neo-paganism of our time. 
And since paganism's God is man, what was the first temptation of our parents, friends? This is the root of all apologetics. That's why we have to do it. You will be as God, knowing good from evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. You can define reality for yourself. Has God really said? That's the essence of sin. And paganism always makes man, humankind, God in one form or another. They did it very openly, of course, in ancient paganism. They deified men as gods. But he says, Chet Ramo says, this God began, that is its origin, began with the first man who became self-conscious. So what is God? Well, he's a product of man's mind in everything that is. You see here, man speaks the word. As I said to you before, man speaks the infallible word. The, the word of the moment in a universe of flux, he speaks the word of flux. Oh, that word will be different tomorrow. It will be different next week. But it's a word for the moment. Carl Sagan stated his religious faith thus, The cosmos is all there is or was or ever shall be. The immunologist George Klein puts it this way. He says, I am not an agnostic. I am an atheist. My attitude is not based on science, but rather on faith. The absence of a creator, the non-existence of God, is my childhood faith, my adult belief, unshakable and holy. Michael Paul writes, commenting on the philosophy of Huxley, Huxley vested Dame Nature, as he called her, with attributes hitherto ascribed to God, a tactic eagerly copied by others since. The logical oddity of create, crediting nature, every physical thing there is, with planning and creating every physical thing there is, passed unnoticed. Dame nature, like some ancient fertility goddess, had taken up residence, her maternal arms encompassing Victorian scientific naturalism. Richard Dawkins writes, The universe is nothing but a collection of atoms in motion. Human beings are simply machines for propagating DNA, and the propagation of DNA is a self-sustaining process. It is every living object's sole reason for living. Religion. Sir Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, said this. You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions... Your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That to me is a remarkable statement, partly because what he's just said totally negates itself. I mean, if he's assuming that what he has just said to us has truth value, it has meaning, that it's true in terms of reality... And yet, if my consciousness, like his, is a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules, and I come to a different conclusion than him about reality, who's right? Well, my nerve cells and their associated molecules pre uh, genetically or atomically determine me to think in this way. His determine him, because there's no free will in such a universe, for him to think in his terms. So what's the basis of validation? My brain is a weed growing in the garden, so is his. They're neither right nor wrong, true nor false. 
They're just like the chairs in this room. They just are. Thinking and reasoning has nothing to do with thought or logic or reason or truth. It's just it's associated molecules and nerve cells. And yet he wants to make that a judgment about reality. It's totally self-defeating. But his God is the divine per se. It is the universe itself. John Lennox, a friend of mine at Oxford University, professor of, of math and philosophy of science, has said this. The religious significance of this, he says, there is a great difference between God and the gods and between God and between a God who is the creator and a God who is the universe. As James Clark Maxwell well knew when he inscribed over the door of the famous Cavendish Physics Laboratory in Cambridge, the words, great are the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in them. This same Oxford scientist who's an amazing Christian tells us, he says, and I quote, perhaps there is a subtle danger today that in their desire to eliminate the concept of a creator, some scientists and philosophers have been led, albeit unwittingly, to re-deify the universe by endowing matter and energy with creative powers they cannot be convincingly shown to possess. Banishing the one creator God, they would then end up with what has been described as ultimate polytheism. A universe in which every particle has godlike capacities. Of course, this faith of man speaking the word, who's come up from a blind void, from the goo, through the zoo to you, and is going back to it, is an illusory faith. Because any meaning that is created is an illusion. And it can only be for that person who has created it. But John tells us we have been given, and with this I close, the final word. The speech of God, not an impersonal void, but a personal God who has communicated and at the, is at the root of all things. And communication means community. Why do you, one of the reasons you come to a place like this on a Sunday or this evening is because here you speak a common language. You accept a common meaning. You can communicate and therefore you have community. Communication is the basis of community. And because of our fallen condition, we've fallen into a communication gap in our time where we see divisions and conflicts plaguing our society. We are told, our students are told, that people occupy different meaning groups, subcultures, and the meaning of one group has, does not translate into the meaning of the other because there's no referent above these different groups. Words themselves... I mean, it was Nietzsche who said that if there's no God, we've got to get rid of grammar. There's no meaning in language for these people. It's just noise. You might understand the noise in this small community group, but in another group, the noise doesn't mean anything. It certainly doesn't mean the same thing. But we have been given the word, the logos from God, which defines meaning. When people reject then this word in whom there is light and life, they turn toward darkness and death and the destruction of meaning, of value and purpose. We call it nihilism. Nihilism. As one American commentator has put it, and I quote, the darkness of a fallen world seeks to comprehend or overcome the light, to blot it out. If fallen man cannot be God, he is determined there shall be no God. Hence his life and work are dedicated to the destruction and blotting out of light. 
Men like the Marquis de Sade and Nietzsche were more honest than most in expressing fallen man's dream of blotting out the very sun and in demanding the death of God. But the light shines into the darkness of sin and the fallen world cannot put it out. You see, many in our culture and time today are saying, look, all there is is the abyss. Stare at the abyss with pride. That's all there is. John tells us, no, the world was created by him and for him. And this Jesus, this Christ, what did he say about the world? He says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my father. Every hair of your head is numbered. That he bottles the tears of our sorrows. What does the psalmist say? He perceives our thoughts from afar He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. You see, that's the nearness, the providence, the imminence of God. He's not just a transcendent God, but he's imminent in his providential care. That every detail of your life, every single detail has meaning. You see, the choice, friends, is not between God's meaning and various other possible meanings. It's between total meaning... A total meaning and relationship between all things and total meaninglessness. Every sparrow, every hair, every thought is encompassed by the total meaning given to it by God. The alternative is the abyss of total meaninglessness. People have to be confronted with this. That when they reject Christ, they're not just rejecting some socio-cultural form of life where you do church once a week and maybe a Bible study. You're rejecting the Word through whom all things came to be, from whom, to whom are all things. What does the Apostle Paul say in Colossians, Colossians 1? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. That's the Christ of Scripture. He's not just a God you tag on to the end of the rest of your life. He's a, well, you know, I've got a nice home, good job, couple of cars, triple garage. Oh, and I also do Jesus. No, he's the centerpiece. He's the focus. He's the root and the branch. I know you've got a triple garage, uh, Carl. That wasn't a reference to you. I've got a double garage myself. You see, today, people, when they deny the word of Christ, they logically deny purpose and meaning, and they choose no word. When you deny the word, you have left to you no word. When you deny Christ and his meaning, you are left with no meaning. People do it because they believe they free themselves in doing this to be their own God, but they don't. You know, the biblical doctrine of hell is the final separation of those who despise God from the word, from the speech of God as the ultimate negation of truth and meaning. And because they are alienated from the speech of God, 
from the word of God. They are alienated from communication and therefore from community. Hell is the perfection of isolation. It is the annihilation of community because there is no speech of God. There is no unifying meaning or purpose. And men and women choose that. It's a speechless place and people today are living in the suburbs of hell with philosophies of meaninglessness that destroy the speech of God or try to destroy the speech of God, but John says it cannot be overcome. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. You see, your friends and mine, your colleagues and mine, many of them are living in these suburbs of hell without the speech of God. They don't recognize him. The world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. But in him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus Christ is the covenant man who comes to establish his new community, his new humanity. And in that new humanity, there is a unity of meaning because we are recipients of the word, the speech of God. You know, at Pentecost in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit fell, what happened? Everybody from the then known world who was there to worship in Jerusalem heard the gospel message in their own language. That was the miracle. Here, the new community being created in the person of Jesus Christ. The curse of Babel was being undone through this church. Paul tells us he is the head of his body, the church. The new community, so that in all things Christ might have the preeminence. And you and I are called now, therefore, to take every thought captive in every single area of life and lead it in obedience to Christ, the Word. That might be education, it might be family life, it might be uh, political life, it might be uh, scientific life, it might, whatever it might be, we are to take every thought captive and lead it in terms of obedience to Christ. As the source of God's meaning, thinking God's thoughts after him. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ, then, is at the center of our apologetics. Let's take some, take some questions for a few minutes. I wish I could comment. I have no idea what I think about it because I've never heard of it. I apologize. I need to brush up on my apologetic there, obviously. <laughs> Thanks for that, mate. It's good. Yeah. I'm not a biologist, unfortunately. Hi, thanks so much for coming. That was awesome. Uh, if Christ is the center of our apologetics, what do we do with this new attack? Um, well, it's not new. It's been going on for 150 years. But on the idea that we can't even know what Christ said or did, mm -hmm. uh, the, the whole Bart Ehrman, you know, he's got another book out, mm -hmm. Jesus Interrupted, that we really can't know anything that this man ever said or did with any certainty. 
So how do we start with Christ as the center of our, our apologetics when the mm. whole idea that this is the word of God is just not accepted by most people? Anymore? Sure, sure, that's a great question. Well, there's a number of ways of, of addressing that. Um, I think the first and the most important thing is that Bart Ehrman and all uh, such commentators are beginning with their own religious presuppositions. And that presupposition is that this is not the word of God. You see, the Bible doesn't offer a textual argument for its own authenticity because ultimately when we come to faith in Christ, we do so because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, who leads us into all truth. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have... We do have a very, very good textual support for the New Testament. Uh, we have the testimony of these eyewitnesses. Now, it's the God that they speak about. It's the Christ that they speak about who is the focus of our faith. That's true. So the question becomes, if we deny the testimony of this word and the triune God which this word speaks of, the Christ that this word speaks of, what have we got left? You see, Bart Ehrman wants to begin with his autonomous mind, his autonomous thinking. He's placed himself in the position of God. He says, well, we can't know what Jesus uh, said for himself. We can't know whether this word is indeed from God. Well, he's starting, therefore, somewhere else. My starting point is ultimately a starting point of faith. It's not an irrational leap. He's got his own faith assumptions. He's starting there. I'm starting with this word. Now the question is, in the end, when you've looked at where his faith is going to lead him to a questioning and doubting everything that Christ has said, we can't know this, we can't know that, we can't know the other, then what are we left with? We're left with the authority of Bart Ehrman. Uh, uh, and we've got his infallible word. Right? So the choice is always between somebody's word. Now, Augustine says, I believe in order that I may understand. When I believe this, understanding about my life and reality and history and truth, it, I, I, he says, I walk into understanding. I take that small step, and then I find myself moving towards understanding. I believe in order to understand. We all have to believe certain things in order to move into any kind of understanding. Uh, Anselm uh, talks about... Um, uh, in a sense, reason reflecting on revelation, his faith seeking understanding in that same Augustinian uh, move, if you like. So we have a choice of starting with the autonomous thinking of these people or with the word of God. And the question ultimately comes down to this. If we, if we accept this word and the triune God of Scripture, are we left with an intelligible view of reality? Yes, we are. If we accept the word of these other people, we're not reality collapses. If this God is not real, if Christ is not who, he's claim, who he is claimed to be in this word, then all we're left with is the arbitrary thought of Bart Ehrman and, and co, whoever they may be, in which case I can question the very validity of his argumentation because as I've shown tonight, I hope, or at least tried to indicate, that without this God there is no meaning in anything. So I can write my own book I'll come up with my own theory of meaning and theory of language and theory of history, and it's just as credible as his. But he wants there to be some sense of validation of what he said. Well, without the Christ that he's trying to undermine, he hasn't got validation. He's got no basis for validation. So that's one way of looking. That's the philosophical approach, uh, uh, way of looking at it. The other thing, of course, is to say, and there are many who are far more expert in this area than I, you know, we do have 5,000 Greek manuscripts, we do have 25,000 manuscripts in total. We do know we can reconstruct all of the New Testament by 11 verses just from the early church fathers' quotations. 
So we know the words of Christ as well as we know any other. Certainly in terms of antiquity, there is nothing like the New Testament. Nothing to compare with it. Nothing at all. And this has been established by even skeptical scholars again and again and again. Uh, you know, the Jesus Seminar and all that. It's all passe now. You know, what did the Jesus Seminar do? Well, they passed around a hat and said, you know, did Jesus say this? Oh, I vote no. Well, who's an authority then? <laughs> you know, it's not based on any, uh, on, uh, uh, you know, they weren't there. So you either believe the eyewitnesses and whether all these eyewitnesses are all liars or you don't. Well, you know, why should I believe Bart over the Apostle John? Well, I know who I'm with. So we've got textual archaeological evidences. You can talk about, I mean, apologetics books are by the library load on those kind of subjects, and you can become versed and expert in them. But ultimately, the issue is if you deny this, the triune God of Scripture revealed in Jesus Christ, all meaning and truth collapses. And I would argue, in fact, uh, my favorite Christian philosopher put it this way. He says that when it comes to the theism described in Scripture, that is, that the Christian theism must be taken as a whole, he says, anti Christian theism presupposes theism, right? In other words, you can't make an anti-Christ argument without already unwittingly have had to presuppose him to make your argument meaningful. And so that is where the rug comes out from underneath all of these claimants to authority. The question is, do we stand with Christ and the work of the Spirit, or are we going to stand with these autonomous thinkers who lead us down endless rabbit trails? So there's two ways of tackling it, and I think both are important. Um, so do you think there's a rational argument to be made for Christianity beyond just the elimination of alternatives? Beyond just the... It seems like the, the main way you're arguing is just the elimination of alternatives. Yes. Um, that's, a very good, that's a very good question. Um, ultimately, I believe that all argument is, uh, must be and is, by definition, broadly circular. I don't mean it's a flat circle. I mean that if something is to be uh, logical and rational and coherent, valid, uh, your conclusion is entailed in your premise. So that when we argue for God, we are assuming, of course, we, we actually are, are using Christian, even when you frame a cosmological argument, you're actually taking a Christian view of causality to form your argument. Um, so if you take a teleological argument, you're assuming a Christian understanding of reality to make a teleological argument. So you, in one sense, yeah, you can, can construct arguments that um, you're purporting in some respects to be starting with what's accepted, acceptable to everybody. But when you really get down to it, you would actually find that what you're saying is not acceptable to everybody. Um, one, of the, one of the issues with, with this kind of question is that not everybody has suppressed the truth to the same degree. Right, so you can encounter people who actually you know, do believe in some kind of God. They're just not sure who he is. They kind of do believe that there are ultimate moral values, and, but they're not exactly sure you know, where the detail is. Uh, and then you've got others who are much more self-conscious in their rejection of the Christ of Scripture. I was in Oxford a few weeks ago speaking at the Oxford University Mission, and there were five or 600 uh, Oxford students in the town hall every day for five days, a number of philosophers, and I was speaking with some of them afterwards. And one of them came up to me and said, you're absolutely right. There's no basis for validation. We had this lengthy discussion. And so I challenged him about whether there was any meaning in our conversation at all and what the point was if he was really wanting to argue, me, argue with me when there is no basis for validation of anything. He said, well, yes, I guess I have committed a number of logical fallacies there. There's no basis for validation. There's no meaning. And he left the conversation. 
So when you are, some people are that self-consistent that I, I you know, on, a, on another occasion, um, another Oxford student there, we began talking about morality. She said, well, morality is just, you know, socio-culturally conditioned. It's, it's all relative to time culture. Um, it's, uh, you know, for us, this is immoral now, but, you know, in another time it might not be. So I said, well, so what you're saying then is, you know, if enough people in a given culture decide that something is moral, um, then it's moral. If, if an, enough say something is immoral, it's immoral. She said, yeah. So I said, okay, so if there was a revival of fascism in Britain over the next, you know, two years, and the consensus was the majority thought that we should kill all Jews and gypsies, uh, you know, would that be right? Now, she's got a couple of friends with her, so she's in a really difficult bind right then, right? So the question is, be embarrassed or deny your humanity. She chose to deny her humanity. She said, yeah, that would be right. So people are at different levels of self-consciousness in terms of their rejection of God. So you can say, okay, well, let's look at the world and look at the idea of causality and say, well, if there's, you know, if there's an effect, there must be a cause and there must be a prime mover, etc., etc. Aquinas is five ways. But people who are very self-conscious about their view of reality will recognize, well, that's a Christian argument. David Hume will argue, essentially, that you know, we, causality is a metaphysical belief, he said. You don't uh, see causality, you see succession. So you have to believe in causality to do science. So my ultimate answer to you would be no, actually. I don't believe there is... Um, the, the, the ultimate uh, way in which we approach, we should approach Christian apologetics is the impossibility of the contrary. That the, all contrary worldviews show themselves to be impossible. They collapse under their own weight. I don't say, well, okay, let's pretend, because this is what I'd have to do as a Christian. If you take another approach, what you've got to say to yourself is with the non-believer, okay, let's all be neutral for a minute and let's, pretend, let's look at the universe and say God may or may not exist. So if God may or may not exist, let's look at the facts and let's see if the facts add up towards God more probably or add up less towards God, you know, more probably. Well, what a Christian then has done is denied that all things were made through him and by him and for him. You've just denied in the context of your argument what you're trying to lead the person to believe. So you've said, you've said that you've got an intelligible set of concepts with which to understand reality without reference to God, if you approach the argument in that autonomous fashion. Because what you've essentially had to say is, well, I can have reason, I can have logic, I can have language, I can have a real world out there, all of those things, whether or not there is a God. Now, what I'm saying is, actually only Christianity gives us reason, logic, intelligibility, language, etc., with any kind of meaning, because it posits God. So, if we pretend to neutrality on the subject, I think in the end we, we really defeat ourselves. The best way is to say, in my opinion, well, this is, I believe Christ, he's my source of authority. Now, let me put your lenses on. So I get myself into the shoes of the non-believer and I say, okay, if the world is really as you believe it to be, what does it look like? It collapses into meaninglessness. Okay, and then I offer the non-believer my lenses to where to say, now look at the world for the sake of argument through Christian lenses. Ah, now it makes sense. So that I don't take the part of the non-believer and say, sure, I can understand reality without God, so let's just argue about it and see if we can tip the balance of probability. Because then what we're saying is, well, it's my mind and the reach of my reason that defines the issue of God. 
But if, as John says, God, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, well, of course, all things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Then you can't say anything. There is no intelligibility without Him to anything. So I prefer to begin there because I think it's more honest. So even when I'm doing a debate on the existence of God, I'll say, I'm a Christian. That's my pre-commitment. And here's why. And if you're not, this is what it means. So actually, it's by the impossibility of the contrary that we establish the truth of Christianity. That actually, the very, the very idea of proof is dependent upon the Christian worldview. Without the Christian worldview, the concept of proof is redundant. It's absurd. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.